Sister Holland and I are both especially delighted to be with you the day after Valentine's and the day before Sister Holland's birthday. Guess what is on my mind? Guess what I'm going to talk about? See spot run. I am going to talk about love because Shakespeare made me do it. You see, it's the 15th of February, which, if it were the 15th of March, would be the Ides of March. And everybody remembers what Brutus did to Julius Caesar on the Ides of March. And it befell Mark Anthony to get back at Brutus in the great funeral oration. The same Mark Anthony who let Cleopatra take him for the proverbial trip up the Nile without a paddle, so to speak. <laughs> Never mind that the Ides of February were actually day before yesterday. I am certainly not going to let that stop me from speaking about love and romance and marriage, a topic absolutely foreign to the interests of those on this campus and one scarcely mentioned here this entire month. Indulge me. Pretend you are interested, okay? If only because Sister Holland is my valentine and it is her birthday tomorrow. You know, winning Sister Holland was actually not an easy thing to do. I worked at it and worked at it and worked at it until I finally had the courage to ask for her hand. Then in that romantic setting, I said as meekly and humbly as I could, Pat, will you marry me? To which she said, oh, dearest darling, dearest, dearest loved one, yes, 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 yes. When, when shall we set the date? Oh, we've got to reserve the temple. I know exactly what colors I want for the bridesmaid. Should we have the reception indoors or out? Oh, someone must be at the guest book. And I can see in my mind the cake that we want. And Is she looking at me? <laughs> She stopped mid-sentence and said, Oh, darling, you are so overcome, you're speechless. Here, I have just gone on and on. Wouldn't you like to say something on this night of nights? To which I replied, I think I've said too much already. She counters that story by remind me, reminding me that when I arrived for our first date, her little brother shouted out to her, Hey, dreamboat, your barnacle is here. <laughs> now, actually, neither of those stories is true, but... Who knows? Maybe you can use them someday when you have to speak at BYU <laughs> on love and marriage. <laughs> now, let me be serious. What I've learned of romantic love 
and of the beauty of marriage, I have learned from Sister Holland. I am honored to be her husband. And I'm happy for you that she is on this campus again this morning, if only for an hour or two. As I once said of her, paraphrasing what Mark Twain's Adam said of his Eve, wherever she was, there was paradise. I wish to speak to you this morning about Christ-like love and what I think it can and should mean in your friendships, your dating, in serious courtship, and ultimately in marriage. I approach the subject knowing full well that, as a newly engaged young woman said to me just last month, there is certainly a lot of advice out there. I don't want to add needlessly to this rhetoric on romance, but I believe that, second only to your membership in the Church, your membership in a marriage is the most important association you will have in time and eternity. And to the faithful, what doesn't come in time will come in eternity. So perhaps all of you will forgive me for offering, yes, a little more advice. But I wish it to be scriptural advice, gospel advice. Advice, if you will, that is as basic to life as it is to love. Counsel that is equally applicable to men and women. It has nothing to do with trends or tides of the time or tricks of the trade. But it has everything to do with the truth. So may I put your friendships and dates and eventually your marriages in a scriptural context this morning and speak to you of what I will try to communicate as true love. After a long, wonderful discourse on the subject of charity, the seventh chapter of Moroni tells us that this highest of Christian virtues is more, accurate, more accurately labeled the pure love of Christ, and it endureth forever, and whoso is found possessed of it at the last day, it shall be well with him and her. Wherefore, Mormon continues, Pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that ye may be filled with this love which he hath bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ, that ye may become the sons and daughters of God, that when he shall appear we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that we may be purified even as he is pure. Now, true charity, the absolutely pure, perfect love of Christ, has really been known only once in this world in the form of Christ himself, the living Son of the living God. It is Christ's love that Mormon goes to some length to describe for us there, and which Paul the Apostle did some years before writing to the Corinthians in New Testament times. As in everything, Christ is the only one who got it all right, did it all perfectly, loved the way we're all to try to love. But even though we fall short, that divine standard is there for us. It's a goal toward which we are to keep trying, to keep reaching, to keep striving, and certainly to keep appreciating. And as we speak of this, may I remind you, as Mormon explicitly taught, 
that this love, this ability and capacity and reciprocation that we all so want is a gift. It is bestowed. That's Mormon's word. It doesn't come without effort and it doesn't come without patience. But like salvation itself, in the end, it's a gift given by God to the true followers of His Son, Jesus Christ, it says. The solution to life's problems are always gospel solutions. Not only are answers found in Christ, but so is the power, the gift, the bestowing, the miracle of giving and receiving such answers. In this matter of love, no doctrine that I know of could be more encouraging to us than that. I've taken for a title this morning Mrs. Browning's wonderful line, How Do I Love Thee? I am not going to count the ways this morning, but I am impressed with her choice of adverb. Not when do I love thee, nor where do I love thee, nor why do I love thee, nor why don't you love me, but rather how. How do I demonstrate it? How do I reveal true love for you? Mrs. Browning was correct. Real love is best shown in the how. And it is with the how that Mormon and Paul help us the most. The first element of divine love, pure love, taught by these two prophets, is its kindness, its selfless quality, its lack of ego and vanity and consuming self-centeredness. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not, is not puffed up, seeketh not her own. I've heard President Hinckley teach publicly and privately what I suppose all leaders have said, male and female, that most problems in love and marriage ultimately start with selfishness. In outlining ideal love in which Christ, the most unselfish man who ever lived, is the great example, it's not surprising that scriptural commentary starts here. There are many qualities you'll want to look for in a friend or a serious date to say nothing of a spouse and eternal companion. But surely among the very first and most basic of these qualities will be that of care and sensitivity toward others, a minimum of self-centeredness that allows compassion and courtesy to be evident. That best portion of a good man's life is his kindness, said Mr. Wordsworth. There are lots of limitations in all of us, which we hope our sweethearts will overlook. I suppose no one is as handsome or as beautiful as he or she wishes to be, or as brilliant in school, or as witty in speech, or as wealthy as we would like. But in a world of such varied talents and fortunes, which we can't always command, I think that makes even more attractive the qualities we can command, such qualities as simple thoughtfulness, patience, a kind word, true delight in the accomplishment 
of another. These cost us nothing. And they can mean everything to the one who receives them. I like Mormon and Paul's language that says one who truly loves is not puffed up. Puffed up. Isn't that a great image? Haven't you ever been with someone who was so conceited, so full of themselves that they sounded like the Pillsbury Doughboy? Fred Allen said once that he saw such a fellow walking down Lover's Lane holding his own hand. <laughs> True love blooms when we care more about another person than about ourselves. That is Christ's great atoning example. And it ought to be more evident in the kindness we show, the respect we give, the selflessness and courtesy that we employ in our personal relationships. Love is a fragile thing and some elements in life can try to break it. Much damage can be done if we're not in tender hands, caring hands. To give ourselves totally as we do in marriage to another person is the most trusting step we take in any human relationship. It is a real act of faith, faith all of us must be willing to exercise. If we do it right, we end up sharing everything, all our hopes and our fears, our dreams, our weaknesses, our joys with another person. No serious courtship or engagement or marriage is worth the name if we do not fully invest all that we have into it, and in so doing, trust ourselves totally to this one we love. You cannot succeed in love if you keep one foot out on the bank for safety's sake. The very nature of the endeavor requires that you hold on to each other as tightly as you can and jump in the pool together. In that spirit and the spirit of Mormon's plea for pure love, I want to impress upon you the vulnerability and the delicacy of your partner's future as it is placed in your hands for safekeeping. Male and female, it works both ways. Sister Holland and I have been married for nearly 37 years, just a half dozen or so years short of twice as long as we have lived without each other. I may not know everything about her, but I know 37 years worth, and she knows that much of me. I know her likes and her dislikes, and she knows mine. I know her tastes and interests and hopes and dreams, and she knows mine. As our love has grown and our relationship matured, we have been increasingly free with each other about all of that. The result is that I know much more clearly now how to help her. And if I were to let myself, I know exactly what will hurt her. In the honesty of our love, love which cannot truly be Christ-like without such total devotion, surely God will hold me accountable for any pain I cause her by intentionally exploiting or hurting when she has been so trusting of me, long since having thrown away any self-protection,
in order that we could be, as the Scripture says, one flesh. To impair or impede her in any way for my gain or my vanity or my emotional mastery over her should disqualify me on the spot to be her husband. Indeed, it should consign my miserable soul to eternal incarceration in that large and spacious building which Lehi says is the prison of those who live by vain imagination and the pride of the world. No wonder that building is at the opposite end of the field from the tree of life representing the love of God. In all that Christ was, he was never envious or inflated. He was never consumed with his own needs. He did not once, not ever, seek his own advantage at the expense of someone else. He delighted in the happiness of others, happiness that he could bring them. He was forever kind. Now, in a dating and courtship relationship, I would not have you spend five minutes with someone who belittles you, one who is constantly critical of you, one who is cruel at your expense and may even call it humor. Life is tough enough without the person who is supposed to love you leading the assault on your self-esteem your sense of dignity, your confidence, and your joy. In this person's care, you deserve to feel physically safe and emotionally secure. Members of the First Presidency have taught, and I quote, that any form of physical or mental abuse to any woman is not worthy of any priesthood holder and that no man who holds the priesthood of God should abuse his wife in any way or demean or injure or take undue advantage of any woman. And that includes friends and dates and sweethearts and fiancés, to say nothing of wives. Now, if you're just going for pizza or to play a set of tennis, go with anyone who provide good, clean fun. But if you're serious, or planning to be serious, please find someone who brings out the best in you and is not envious of your success. Find someone who suffers when you suffer and who finds his or her happiness in your own. The second segment of this scriptural sermon on love says that true charity, real love, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, and rejoiceth not in iniquity. Think of how many arguments could be avoided, how many hurt feelings could be spared, how many cold shoulders and silent treatments could be ended, and in a worst-case scenario, how many breakups and divorce could be avoided if we were not so easily provoked, if we thought no evil of one another, if we were 
not only not rejoicing in iniquity, but didn't even rejoice in little mistakes. Temper tantrums are not cute even in children. They are despicable in adults, especially adults who are supposed to love each other. We are sometimes, maybe too often, too easily provoked. We're too inclined to think that our partner must have meant to hurt us, must have meant to do us evil, so to speak. And in defensive or even jealous response, we too often rejoice when we then see them make a mistake and find them in a fault. Let's show some discipline on this one. Let's act a little more maturely. Bite your tongue if you have to. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. At least one difference, it seems to me, between a tolerable marriage and a great one may be that willingness in the latter to allow some things to pass without comment, without response. I mentioned Shakespeare. Now in a talk on love and romance you might well expect a reference to Romeo and Juliet. But let me refer to a much less virtuous story. With Romeo and Juliet, the outcome was a result of innocence gone awry, I guess, a kind of sad, heartbreaking mistake between two families that should have known better. But in the tale of Othello and Desdemona, the sorrow and destruction is calculated. It is maliciously driven from the beginning. Of all the villains in Shakespeare's writing, and perhaps in all of literature, there is no one I loathe as much as I loathe Iago. Even his name sounds evil to me, or at least at his, it has become so. And what is his evil? And Othello's tragic, near inexcusable susceptibility to it? It is the violation of Moroni 7 and 1 Corinthians 13. Among other things, they sought for evil where none existed. They embraced imaginary iniquity. The villains here rejoiced not in the truth. Of the innocent Desdemona, Iago said, I turn her virtue into pitch and out of her goodness make the net that shall enmesh them all. Sowing doubt, devilish innuendo, playing on jealousy and deceit, dishonesty, finally murderous rage. Iago provokes Othello into taking Desdemona's life. 
virtue turned into pitch and goodness twisted into a fatal net. Now, thank heavens, here in Happy Valley this morning, we are not talking of infidelity, real or imagined, nor of murder. But in the spirit of a university education, let's learn the lessons being taught. Think the best of each other, especially of those you say you love. Assume the good and doubt the bad. Encourage in yourself what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. Othello could have been saved even in the last instant when he once more kissed Desdemona and her purity was so evident. That kiss, he said, dost almost persuade justice to break her sword. Well, he'd have been spared her death and his suicide if he had broken Justice's sword right then and there, at least Justice as he supposed it, rather than figuratively speaking, using it on her. This tragically sad Elizabethan tale could have had an absolutely beautiful ending. If just one man, who then influenced one other man, had thought no evil, had rejoiced not in iniquity, but had rejoiced in the truth. Thirdly and lastly, the prophets tell us that true love beareth all things believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Once again, that is ultimately a description of Christ's love. He's the great example of one who bore and believed and hoped and endured perfectly. We are invited to do the same in our courtship and in our marriage to the best of our ability. Bear up and be strong, be hopeful, be believing. Some things in life we have little or no control over. These have to be endured. Some disappointments have to be lived with in love and in marriage. These are not things anyone wants necessarily in life, but sometimes they come. And when they come, we have to bear them. We have to believe. We have to hope for an end to sorrow and difficulty. We have to endure things that they will come right in the end. One of the great purposes of true love is that it will help one another in these times. No one ought to have to face such trials alone. We can endure almost anything if we have someone at our side who really loves us, who is easing the burden and lightening the load to the best of his or her ability. In this regard, a friend from our BYU faculty told me some years ago about Plimsoll marks. As a youth in England, Samuel Plimsoll 
was fascinated with watching ships load and unload their cargoes. He soon observed, even in his youth, that regardless of the cargo space available, each ship had maximum capacity of some kind. And if a ship exceeded that limit, it would likely sink at sea. In 1868, Plimsoll, as an older man, entered Parliament and passed a Merchant Shipping Act, which, among other things, called for making calculations as to how much a ship could carry. As a result of that legislation, lines were drawn on the hull of each shipping ship in England. As the cargo was loaded, the freighter would sink lower and lower into the water. When the water level on the side of the ship reached the plimsoll mark, the ship was considered loaded to capacity, regardless of how much space appeared to remain. As a result, British deaths at sea were dramatically reduced. Like ships, people have differing capacities at different times, even different days in their lives. In our relationships, we need to establish our own plimsoll marks and help identify them in the lives of those we love. Together, we need to monitor the load levels and be helpful in shedding or at least readjusting some of the cargo if we see our sweethearts sinking. Then when the ship of love is stabilized, we can evaluate long term what has to continue, what can be put off until another time, and what can be put off permanently. Friends, sweethearts, spouses need to be able to monitor each other's stress and recognize the different tides and seasons of life. We owe it to each other to declare some limits and then help jettison some things if emotional health and the strength of loving relationships are at risk. Remember, pure love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things, and helps loved ones do the same. Let me close. In Mormon's and Paul's final witness, they declare that charity, pure love, never faileth. It is there through thick and thin. It endures through sunshine and shadow, through darkest sorrow and on into the light. It never fails. So Christ loved us, and that is how that is how he hoped we would love each other. In a final injunction to all his disciples for all time, he said, A new commandment I give unto thee, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Of course, such Christ-like staying power in romance and marriage requires more than really any of us have. It requires 
much more. It requires an endowment from heaven. Remember Mormon's promise that such love, the love we each yearn for and cling to, is bestowed, it's given, it's granted upon true followers of Christ. You want capability and safety and security in dating and romance, in married life and eternity? Be a true disciple of Jesus. Be a genuine, committed, word and deed Latter-day Saint. Believe that your faith has everything to do with your romance, because it does. You separate dating from discipleship at your peril. Or to phrase that more positively, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, is the only lamp by which you can successfully see the path of love and happiness for you and for your sweetheart. How should I love thee? As he does. For that way never faileth. I so testify and express my love for you and for him in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.